The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Hello and welcome, this is Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams. Today I'm here for a new episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast to present a new installment of the LA Studio Legends series. My guest today is a tremendously talented award-winning classical pianist. She played many works of the great contemporary composers including Georgi Ligeti, Pierre Boulez, Terry Riley and Esapekka Salonen, becoming one of the advocates of the contemporary repertoire. She has played for John Williams in several film scores and has been featured as soloist in such films as Munich, The Adventures of Ten Ten and War Horse. She was the dedicatee of the piano solo composition by John Williams called Conversations and recently she has performed the American premiere of Williams' Prelude and Scherzo for Piano and Orchestra together with the Albany Symphony, conducted by David L. Miller. So I'm very happy today to have here on the Legacy of John Williams podcast, pianist Gloria Chang. Hello, Gloria. Nice to have you here. Hi, Maurizio. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for accepting to, to do this talk with me. As you know, you are the last in the series of the great pianists and keyboardists who work with John <laughs> in the series. Uh, but I'm very happy to have you here too, because actually we talked a little bit via email a few years ago at the beginning of this Legacy of John Williams project. You were kind enough to talk a little bit about montage, which back then was out since a few months. So I'd love today to talk a little bit about your career in general and your work with John Williams. Uh, to start, I'd love to, you know, touch upon your your training. I mean, how did you become a classical trained pianist and specialize in contemporary repertoire and and how this also became your your permanent job together as being a studio musician uh, I had this the traditional training of started with the neighborhood well actually no I started with my mother who who gave me my very first lessons when I was four years old and then by the five, time I was five I think she had had enough of trying to teach me <laughs> and so I went to the neighbor, she took me to the piano, the neighborhood piano teacher, who I stayed with for, I think, several, several years. Um, I was playing some very advanced repertoire, uh, way beyond what I was really suited to do, you know, ready for. And um, I went to a music camp where I met Isabel San Ambrosio, who became really one of my very formative teachers, who um, talked about uh, uh, touch and and tone production and uh, just relaxation. I've never in my life had physical problems um, at the piano, despite some of the very kind of outlandish things that I have to do, that, you know, on things that I was not brought up to do mm -hmm. on the keyboard. Um, I've never had any physical issues and I owe that to her, um, to the excellent, excellent training that she gave me technically. Um, my next most important teacher, I'd say, was um, Aubie Sirico at UCLA, who was legendary, um, one of Arthur Schnabel's protégés and assistants, actually. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot from him with regard to structuring a phrase 
And I really, really think of him almost every day, especially with the abstract music that I often deal with. You know, how does, how does something that abstract have, how do you, how do you shape it? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you shape something that has no bar lines or, or no meter? So something has to make, it has to make sense rhetorically. So I, I got that from him. I'd say that's the most important thing that I got from him. And then John Perry, who was also a, a revered teacher who, who uh, uh, taught at University of Southern California when I got my doctorate there. And he just puts the fire underneath his, uh, uh, his students. And, and I think I'd say that's the number one thing I got from him is how to just, you know, not be so dutiful, um, not just not to sound like an excellent student, but to mm-hmm. sound, you know, like <laughs> something beyond to aspire beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is very interesting because I think it speaks about also the, the liveliness of the L.A. musical scene. I mean, uh, a lot of you uh, who grew up in that era, I think, really grew up in a very lively environment. But L.A. has always been a, a staple for musical activity and also crossroad, a, a kind of a crossroad of many different cultural um, references, we can say, we could say. Uh, so how did you basically decided to be specialized in contemporary repertoire? I mean, you, you followed a, a quite different path than we could say the traditional <laughs> uh, classically trained pianist. Well, I'd say it's where opportunities were. You know, I, mm. I did my first, my very first piece where I had to get inside the piano and pluck strings and stuff like that. That was from Don Davis, of all people. Wow. Um, you know, I knew him as a student at, at UCLA where I did my master's and he, um, he just said, Hey, would, you know, I have this piece and it pays $50. And I thought, well, I can certainly use $50. (laughs) So, so I, and I found that I really enjoyed it and the freedom from the tradition, Mm. uh, the, the ability to just make your own thing of it and find your own way through something that is, um, new and different. Mm. And I learned something from every piece that I play every, Mm. you know, there's no common language anymore. So it's, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that I really um, embrace. I think I, I've spoken to a few people about growing up in a Chinese household where I heard Chinese, either Shanghainese or Mandarin or Cantonese being spoken, but I didn't understand it because my parents were of a generation that insisted that we, we speak English. Okay. So I was hearing foreign languages, a minimum of three going on at any time in, in growing up. And I got used to hearing inflections and gesture and emotion in languages that I didn't necessarily understand. And I think it, it has a lot to do with what I do now. I'm comfortable not understanding necessarily um, the, uh, where the, the specific notes, but I'm, I, I do enjoy figuring out what the meaning is and the emotional content. And this is, this is fascinating. I mean, I think it speaks Again, about crossroads, you know, about pulling together different uh, threads from from uh, how you how you grew up, where you grew up, and and bringing all together and expressing something new and something uh, personal. And I guess this was also important because you you work with great composers. I mean, Ligeti, Terry Riley, Pierre Boulez, John Adams, Thomas Aids, all, all great big of the the big league of the contemporary <laughs> composer we could say so were, were you kind of maybe scared at the beginning to to touch with 
those the pantheon of those great artists was i scared well yeah i think i probably <laughs> was um uh i spent around 20 years uh as kind of a, a first call extra keyboard player with the la phil okay and those were years uh, the salonin years the esopeka salonin years okay and ligeti was coming through boulez came every three years uh regularly mm. um uh ludoslavsky steven stuckey oh, yes. oliver nussen uh, they all came through la and i was the one who was often playing those green umbrella concerts um on synthesizer or or keyboard or a harpsichord or whatnot so those were great training grounds for me mm -hmm. um yes we were terrified often but there was something about especially working with boulez who i worked with so much yes um he just stood there on the podium and he ex he just he just expected us to to rise to the occasion and so we did uh, there wasn't really a choice <laughs> <laughs> oh, true. We, had to, we had to we just practiced like crazy and got ourselves ready i think those years when Esapeka salonin was principal conductor and music director of the la phil were particularly exciting i mean he brought the orchestra to a new level pushing for more contemporary music to be performed, including commissioning new works. Yeah. I mean, the standard repertoire, of course, continued to be performed, but he brought more new music than anyone else in the orchestra before him. Mm -hmm. And he also asked film composers to write pieces for the concert hall, including John Williams. Right. And John wrote that fantastic piece for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall called The Soundings which is one of his most fascinating and abstract composition, in my opinion. I mean, almost going in the territory of Edgar Varese in some places. Yeah. Anyway, before talking about John, let's have a musical interlude now to showcase your talent as a pianist for the contemporary repertoire. The piece we are going to hear now is one of the three preludes composed by Esa Pekelsalonen, and it's the third one, called Invenzione a due voci, which means two-part invention, performed here by Gloria Cheng.
And this was the third of the three preludes for piano by Esapekka Salonen, performed by Gloria Chang. Fascinating piece. So, Gloria, before getting to your work with John Williams, I'd love to ask you about how you ended up doing studio work for film, besides your classical pianist career, because you played in few other film scores for other composers before getting to work with John. Um, that's a good question. Well, I did know Don Davis, you know. Mm-hmm. He gave me my first contemporary solo piano piece to play and sort of got, I, I think he takes credit actually for, for sending me on my path. <laughs> and I, I certainly give credit to him. I knew of James Horner. He was a, a few years ahead of me, but he also was a UCLA pro- a product of UCLA. True. Yes. So we heard each other's names uh, across, you know, the, the levels of um, that we were at. Um, so I, I did a couple of things for James, and I remember after a Green Umbrella concert um, where I played uh, Boulez Eclat, and Boulez was conducting. Ralph Gerson came on stage at the end of the concert, and I didn't know him, but he said, "Hey." I used to play these Monday evening concerts and these, I used to work with Boulez, you know, 10 years ago. Would you like to do studio work? <laughs> and I don't know if Ralph told you this story. No, but, he didn't. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> Little did I know. I really knew nothing about it. I thought it was just playing whole notes or something. Or I, I just thought, well, and, and I also thought I'm probably not, suited at it because I'm not mm. uh I can't play pop music and I can't read chord charts I'm just that's not what I do I mean mm-hmm. I can sight read but I can't do all those other things that I thought were expected so but anyway I think he and Mike Lang who were at every concert that I played not for me necessarily it's just that they're avaricious they are just omnivorous they go to every yes. concert especially yes. contemporary music they were at all of them and I was really active on the concert scene in those days and we got to know each other and I think they helped like thought that I would be suited to doing some studio work. This is fascinating because it shows again uh, how studio musicians often feel very close to each other and how they are a, a family of sorts. I mean, I'm reminded of what Luis de Tullio told me uh, when we talked together for, for this podcast about playing in the flute section with her colleagues and they were always supporting each other and then feeling part of a team. I mean, I guess the keyboard section may be different than the strings or woodwinds, but it seems to me that people like you, Mike Lang, Ralph Grierson and, and Randy Kerber always felt like a part of a small family of sorts. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And we really, really love each other. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, Ralph and Mike are, are really two of my closest, dearest friends. Mm-hmm. And Randy Kerber is also just, we don't know each other quite as well or as long as I've known Mike and, and Ralph. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just respect him so much. And I think, I think it just, we just all respect and really love each other. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's like, uh, a wonderful opportunity also to showcase talent to each other. And and speaking of that, how did you end up being picked by John Williams uh, at some point? Because I think the first work you did for him was Munich, 2005. And you were actually credited as soloist on that, that oh. score. I mean, it's a pretty big, prominent role. Uh, so how that came about? Wow, was it that long ago, 2005? <laughs> yes. Really? Wow. <laughs> 
I remember it like it was yesterday <laughs> because it was, it was the turning point for me. Um, uh, I was, I don't know, second or third keyboardist. I think he had harp may have had harpsichord on that score in addition to Randy. And I think so. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I was playing a not very, not very demanding piano part, I think. And I think Randy may have tipped, tipped John off to, to just, maybe you want to give this big piano solo in the end credit, give Gloria a try. Mm. I think it was Randy because um, it's been a while that I've even seen Randy, but I took him out to lunch to thank him for it. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure that it was him. And that was a while ago too. So um, there was this big piano solo and um, John asked me at the end of one day to take it home and that, you know, we'll, we'll play, you'll, you'll play it for me at the end of tomorrow, you know? So, so I worked on it and uh, the tomorrow came and we had a session, a double session that day. And at the end of it, everyone went home and it was just me and John in the studio and he sat next to the piano and I played it for him and he said, okay, good. Thank you. Um, we'll put this in your book for tomorrow. So that was that. Um, kind of an audition almost it was I, I, luckily i was too stupid to realize that it was an audition <laughs> you know i sometimes joke that i live under a rock i mean because i was so occupied doing new music and learning many many notes for for la phil assignments that i didn't really have much awareness of the film world and how it worked i mean it's a fascinating story again because it speaks about the amount of trust that john always puts into the musician uh, to the feature performer. I mean, uh, you were and you are specialized in the contemporary repertoire, very playing, very abstract music. Uh, but then he comes to you asking to play this very lyrical, um, classically styled piece. Romantic, yeah. Yes, very romantic, yes. And you sound perfect in it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so let's hear the end credits from Munich by John Williams with a piano solo performed by Glory Chang.
the end credits from Munich, music by John Williams. Actually, what I was thinking is also the fact that the piece is heard during the end credits, uh, where there is nothing else but music playing, so it gives the instrument and the soloist um, an even more prominent role. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of that, the next big solo that John Williams asked you to play for a film score of his was in 2011 for The Adventures of 1010. Yeah. Um, it's a completely different piece in style. Uh, I mean, yeah. the film is an animated feature featuring lots of busy music that in some places is almost cartoon-like. Yeah. Um, I mean, in this piece you have an incredible solo. I mean, it's a wonderful composition, which, again, I think it's heard under during the end credits in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very virtuosic yeah. and athletic. <laughs> yeah. It almost sounds like a, a super condensed version <laughs> of a Shostakovich piano concerto in yeah. a way. I, yeah, I remember. Um, yeah. I remember they put the piano in the front to in almost concerto style. Okay. For that, so I must have had something to do with the what it would do audio wise. I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I remember. Uh, <gasps> Spielberg is at all of John's sessions with a video camera, and I keep on asking, "What are you going to do with all this video footage? We want to see it." Anyway, um, he was there, and he came up to me, and he said, "So, Gloria, are you nervous about having this big piano solo?" I thought, well, I hadn't been until you brought it up. You know? <laughs> Just but, Steven Spielberg asking you yeah. <laughs> a question like that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I recall that it was difficult and lots of notes, but it yeah. was very playable, you know. Yes, and it sounds very musical and, and effortless. So let's listen now to Snowy's theme from The Adventures of Tintin with a piano solo performed by Gloria Chang. Thank you. 
and this was Snowy's theme from The Adventures of Tintin, music by John Williams with a piano solo performed by Gloria Chang. While listening to this, I was thinking back at what I was saying a moment ago about this piece being like a compressed version of a, a Shostakovich concerto, but actually what I noticed um, is how this piece shows a lot of John's own personality, I mean, yeah. and, and style when writing for the piano. Yeah. And this is, a, I think, an interesting topic to talk about. Did, did you catch throughout all these years maybe some stylistic traits or staples that he has when he writes for piano? And, of course, it's different if we talk about him writing for the movies versus him writing for the concert hall, two different words. And, and we'll touch about that later. But speaking broadly, did you, did you notice any kind of maybe just a technique that he uses when he writes for the piano? I think I'm not uh, able to comment on technique, but in mm -hmm. terms of sound, yeah, uh, there's always some jazz in there. I mean, in, in fact, in the prelude and scherzo that we're about to talk about, there's a, a passage that said, you know, in the piano part, like Bill Evans. And there's a passage for the bass section to play like uh, Ray Brown. So um, that's always there. And then I think just the composers that he loves. I mean, there's, you know, there's a little bit, the Russians, um, there's a little bit of that in there. It seems like he's uh, referencing uh, his, uh, I mean, all the, the loves of his youth yes. in many ways. Yes. And this doesn't mean that he copies or, or yeah. borrows. It's just, you know, he's a way of reinterpreting, you know, being very aware of the musical past that he he's sitting upon, but uh -huh. being able to reinterpret it also through the voice of the soloist, I think, because I think he, he changes for him if he's writing for you, either if he's writing for, for, for Randy or for, for Rolf. I mean, he knows, mm -hmm. that he, he knows that he can ask any of you anything, basically, and all of you had to be very, had to be ready to play anything that he asks uh, you to play. But at the same time, I think he kind of shift, shifts gear. Yeah, could be. Uh, I mean... You know, it, again, the prelude and scherzo, the, the, the two movements are so different from each other. Yeah. And the, the scherzo having been written first for Long Long, mm -hmm. um, there's just all that kind of punkishness in there. Um, uh, a little bit of, um, you know, brattiness uh, almost, you know, good natured uh, fun, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it was written as a, as a birthday kind of party piece almost. And it being for Long Long, it's it's got a lot of Long Long's personality in it, and then the prelude is completely different. It's yes. you know lyrical and 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 meditative. I had the chance to listen to the prelude and scherzo on the live stream that was made available by the Albany Symphony on their website uh, the day of the premiere, and I have to say that I was very impressed, especially by the prelude because it seems to me that um, John went to revisit, in a way, some of the climate, we could say, um, that is found also in some passages and some of the movements of conversations. Yes. Mm -hmm. Conversation was a very, for me, it was very surprising because I think it's the first time that he wrote a full piano. I don't know how to call it, a piano suite or a piano. Yeah. It's not a sonata. I mean, it escapes also any kind of a specific label that you can apply to it. Yeah. So it's, it's a piece. Four movements. Yeah, four movement piece, and it's a very, very demanding. But I was struck about the 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 tone of some of the movements that he explored. Those, again, jazz like, 
I mean, it's not jazz, but it's you can feel that he, he's it's in there. Yeah, it's, it's just, his it's own way of remembering that era of Chad Baker or Miles Davis or mm. uh, Thelonious Monk. I mean, he referenced again um, yes. specific people, musician in that piece, and they're actually written into the score again. Just again, like what I mentioned in the scherzo with with uh, Bill Evans and Ray Brown, the conversations has a passage that's supposed to be well, the, even the movement titles. Um, mm -hmm. Chet and Miles, you know, Chet Baker and Miles Davis and Claude and Monk, uh, Thelonious Monk, Claude, not necessarily Claude Debussy, possibly a bit of Claude Debussy, but also Claude, uh, gosh, what was his last name? Thornhill, Thornhill. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, and also in this uh, prelude, what is what is I found fascinating is the fact that he contrasted this opening that is almost like a nocturne from piano Mm -hmm. very like a twilight piece i mean it's like a, it, it paints a very wistful picture then it's followed by something completely opposite i mean and yeah. the fact that he wrote <laughs> backwards you know yes. <laughs> yeah it was fascinating so how that came about i mean how john decided to to add the movement and and dedicate it specifically for to to you well he had mentioned the uh scherzo to me some years ago. I mean, I think he may have spoken to me about it maybe 2017 or so. Mm -hmm. And the, the piece was played in 2014 by Long Long and Long Yu. And then I, I, I just kind of put it in the back of my mind. And, and I met a conductor, um, Mark Timon, at intermission at a concert in Santa Monica. And uh, it was actually a student, of, a former student of mine, a composer, um, Thomas Pierre, who, who said, oh, I want you to meet Mark Timon. So then he left us alone. He said, I knew you and Mark would have something to talk about. So I mentioned this piece. Mark was having a two or three year residency with the Palau in Barcelona as a composer and conductor in residence. And, and I said, oh, well, you know, um, yeah, I, you know, I, if you're interested, I mean, I heard about this, I have this piece. <laughs> and that 10 minute conversation at intermission, um, at the end of the intermission, I had an invitation to Barcelona. Wow. to play that to play that piece so i mentioned to john that i had this opportunity to play the piece and um and so he filed that in the back of his mind and then another opportunity came up with albany symphony you know in both cases a nine minute piece for piano and orchestra is is tough to program around it's too short to be a concerto yes um and and then how do you what do you put on that first half with it so it was david allen miller of albany symphony who kind of thought that and I agreed with me that it would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice <laughs> if he if he were to think about it, uh, adding a movement to it and making it a little more of a programmable length? Mm -hmm. So um, David Allen Miller put forth the request, and and John was a little, you know, he wasn't able to say yes immediately. He said, "If you can wait a couple of months, I have to get through and this and this and this." Uh, I know you need to either list it in your next year's program or not, but if you can wait just a little bit, you know, and so anyway, long story short, it happened. <laughs> and that's fantastic. I mean, he's now at a point of his artistic life uh, where he can go into any territory uh, and he, it seems like he's not afraid to do new things in terms of concert music. I mean, this is a huge topic, but it seems that he avoided writing for the piano despite being himself a pianist yeah. and despite the fact that he wrote concerti for virtually all the instruments but the piano. Yeah. 
Now, he recently announced that he's finally writing one and for Emmanuel X, of all people. And, of course, we are all eager to hear it. Uh, but back to the President Scherzo, uh, I do remember that we discussed privately in some of our email conversation before doing this interview. But do, do you think that maybe after writing a prelude and a scherzo, John could maybe write a finale and have another full-on piece for piano and orchestra? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes, yes, it would be. Yes. You know, he was, it was, he was very funny about it because uh, naturally he's so modest, you know, and so I, I wasn't sure even how to approach him because when I, when I said that I had the opportunities in Barcelona and Albany, he said, oh, are you sure you want to bother with that little thing? <laughs> oh, it's not very deep, you know. I mean, are you sure you want to? So I said, you know, when, when David Allen Miller asked about, you know, would you be interested in writing a, a companion movement? And I thought I needed to follow up. And, and I said, John, I don't know if just your normal self-flagellation, if you really hate the piece or if you, maybe you'd like to make it better by adding a second movement to it. You know, so, <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he's just, he's always, he's always putting, you know, he can't possibly think that anything he has done is actually any good. I mean, yeah, so you're, you're not the first one to refer to the fact that he often go back and, and revise things and add, add or revise things. I mean, mm -hmm. for him, it's always a, uh, a matter of being inside the music. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's never a done deal for him. I mean, of course, some projects are, especially movies, are when, once it's over, it's over. Unless it's a Star Wars, of course, and it seems like it's endless <laughs> for for him. But but uh, in terms of concert music, it seems to me that he likes to to go back yeah, we, and revise we, we, things. We were revising certain things even just back in April. Just little little things. Um, for instance, there's an optional ending to the Prelude and Scherzo. The, the the funny little ending that goes quiet after this big yes. uh, it feels like it's the end but it's not and yeah. <laughs> uh, you know that has now become optional it would be the perfect piece to perform at an LA Phil concert season I mean it would be I mean Gustavo Dudamel is one of his biggest fans so I guess it would be mm -hmm. really worth and I mean you are a regular contributor to the to the LA Phil so would, and John is too I mean it would be rare, very nice to, to see you both there with him conducting the LFL, uh the in a performance of the Prelude de Scherzo. <laughs> it would be. So let's have another interlude now. Um, this is an excerpt of uh, one of the movements of Conversations, the piano composition that John Williams wrote for Laura Chang in 2013. It's the second movement, uh, and it's called Claude and Monk.
And this was an excerpt from the second movement of Conversations by John Williams. So, Gloria. Conversations was part of a bigger project called Montage, Great Film Composers and the Piano, which includes an album and also a documentary that was shot during the recording. Yes. It's a project that you spearheaded almost <laughs> heroically, I would say, uh, because you got some of the biggest film composers to write for, for the piano and specifically for you. So uh, I would like to know uh, how John's piece was included in this project and, and was it something that was born before the actual montage project was, was conceived? Um, it was pretty much in the beginning. Uh, mm. He was right there in the beginning because I had a recital at Tanglewood and I was uh, focusing on pieces by composers, not from Los Angeles, but that were premiered in Los Angeles mm -hmm. or featured at one of Betty Freeman's salons in, in Los Angeles, something like that. And I just, I said to John, I just, it would be so nice to have a little piece from you, uh, uh, even just one page. <laughs> so um, just, I would love to have you represented on the program, you know, um, you're, you were quintessentially Los Angeles. And of course, oh no, you know, you've got all those great composers on the program. You don't mind, how could I possibly be? So <laughs> I said, just one page, really just one. And I know other people have said that to him. And then he ends up producing this certainly more, more than one page. But the first page did come, the first movement, um, Mambette, um, yeah. it, based on a well-known Tanglewood story of a slave, Mambette, who won her freedom from a judge who lived in Lenox, Massachusetts. And Mumbet and the judge's uh, family are all buried in the same area of, mm -hmm. of the local cemetery there. Um, so she's a well-known legend there. And um, so that was the first movement. And simultaneously, uh, Bruce Broughton had presented me with a five movement piece, with five pieces for piano. And so that they kind of happened at the same time. And I just thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to see what other people, other composers known primarily, if not only for their film music, what they would produce mm, yes. if given the chance to write yeah. for piano. So let's listen to another excerpt from a conversation and this time from the third movement called Chet and Myers.
And this was Chet and Miles from Conversations by John Williams. So Gloria, talking again about montage, what I admired in this project, what I admire in this project, is the variety and the diversity of the pieces that these composers uh, wrote for you. I mean, we just heard how John wrote for you. But I was also impressed by the piece, for example, by Bruce Broughton. A very pianistic piece. Yeah. Yeah, very pianistic. Absolutely. And very difficult as well. And and Don Davis also wrote a really complex piece for you, really yeah. calling upon your talents for, for the wildest contemporary repertoire. Um, and then we have Michael Giacchino and Alexandre Spla, who went instead more melodic or impressionistic, we could say. Yeah. And then we have the piece by Randy Newman is a wonderful love letter to the old days of Hollywood and to his family. Exactly. And, and here there is a connection to John Williams again because he was the pianist in that era working with Alfred and Lyle Newman at 20th Century Fox. Uh, yeah. Uh, Follow up with you know, the, the relationship between with John and, and, and Randy and Randy's family. Um, a friend of mine, Carlos R- Rafael Rivera, who just won, won the Grammy for uh, his uh, score to the the queen's gambit yeah he, he was at that concert he was a friend of mine he only recently just told me that you know i was at you know i was watching john while you were playing randy's piece at the concert and john was cracking up all the time he was getting all the jokes in, in randy's piece you know so i never heard that anecdote until just wow. a month ago <laughs> And this also speaks about how how personal music is for John. I mean, it's not just like being the rock star film composer, as you said, uh, who wrote all these music for these huge blockbuster famous films. But music for him comes from a private place, from a place 
of love, of love for music, of love for life, of, lo of love for people. And, and what I love about John Williams is the fact that he always thinks about the people when he writes music. When he writes a film score, the people can, is the director, of course, and then afterwards the, the characters on screen. When he writes concert music, he writes for the people who is going to play that music. I mean, if we, th if we can think about all the concerti that he composed, they are mostly composed for the people of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, with whom he created a personal relationship all those years when he was conducting the, the Boston Pops. And, and he picked upon the talents of specific players and musicians. Uh, and this is, I think, something very unique. And I think it ties him to the great tradition of great composers like Brahms or, you know, all the greats. Even when they were concerti, they were writing for specific people. Then the pieces also, of course, ended up in the repertoire and it's, you know, they are constantly played after hundreds of years. But it's so great to think about John Williams in these terms. I mean, he's often, again, as I, say, as I said, singled out for his wonderful movie scores for famous movies. But I think the secret, I mean, for me, or the, the, the most joyous parts are, lies on his spirit, where he comes from and where he still is and where he looks up towards to. I mean, he's 90. I mean, he's still doing and concerts still, anywhere. And still I mean, so active. Yeah, he's been all over the world in the past six months. I'd love also to touch upon, uh, maybe as a camper, uh, you work also as a teacher, as a nurturer for younger generations, uh, you know, at the UCLA. Uh, so how important is that for you? Because I see that many musicians I talk to also have this parallel life as teachers in many cases. So how that is important to you? How much I, important? I, I, I love the teaching. Um, and I, I just, I create, I end up, really bonding with so many of my students and and staying in touch with them or they they stay in touch with me which which just means the world to me and to see them go through 
life and finding their place in the music world, um, you know, landing jobs uh, in an orchestra or in an academic institution, or even as freelancers, just getting busy and making their life in music. It's so inspiring to me. I also teach, uh, I teach a seminar in contemporary uh, performance practice. And every other year I get an influx of jazz students from the Herbie Hancock Institute that UCLA hosts. And they join my seminar and they, they, they inject a whole different perspective uh, for the classical students in the, in the seminar. This is not just for pianists. This is, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's a seminar for every instrument conductor, yeah. choral conductor, band, band, wind band, everything. So it's a mixed class of different, um, uh, 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 different specializations. And um, I just love having that mix and having, seeing the, uh, the eyes go big, you know, and the, the mutual respect between the two, the two so-called genres and uh, just to get to put them together in one classroom and have discussions uh, and, and just hear their, their approaches to music as players also and, and how they think about music. It's, I love that. I just love it. It's been very inspiring to me. No, it's great also because I think that after so many, we could say almost decades, of music having been put in boxes because oh this is this genre this is this other genre you know instead it seems to me that now we can say that music's music is is an open field where different threads and paths can really cross each other yes and find a point a com find a common ground perhaps so i i would be very interested to see where things will be maybe 20 30 50 years from now and how lively will be the environment. And I think in this sense, it, it ties back to the to the beginning of our conversation. Uh, the LA music scene seems to be always have been at the forefront in this regard, because it seems to me that it never, you know, of course there were differences and, and maybe in the past things were a little bit more uh, separated, but uh, maybe if you think about how how many great composers were working in the classical field versus how many great musicians work work in the in the film, for example, the film field. But then the the roads were crossing already. I mean, yeah. you had great string players who were performing the 20th century folk orchestra, also doing recitals, doing chamber music, and so and it was, playing, it was, and working with Stravinsky and Schoenberg. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then maybe at, at the night, and then the other, and the day following day, they were performing for Alfred Newman or mm -hmm. Jerry Goldsmith or other great great composers. And, and John Williams too, as well. Um, so before wrapping up, Gloria, and before I forget, uh, we should mention also the beautiful piano solo that you performed on John's score for Warhorse. It's truly a great solo, very lyrical again, and yeah. very touching. Yeah. It seems that John likes a lot to have a, a, a piano solo at the end of a movie. And this is it's a quiet, eloquent way of, of closing. Oh yes, absolutely.
what, what maybe the last question I can I can ask you maybe is that the title of this podcast and this project is the legacy of John Williams. How will be John's legacy in the future? Do you see his music being considered on par of the great classical repertoire that we revere? How do you see, think John's legacy will be maybe 50, 100 years from now? I think he's earned the respect of anyone who hears his music. And there are many, many so-called concert, you know, classical concert composers who have said to me, you know, that they, they consider John to be one of the greatest composers of all time, um, mm -hmm. that, that he's a better composer than any of them. Um, you know, so, so he, he has the respect and the love of the entire world. So um, it, it's, it, his legacy will be that. He's, mm -hmm. he's beloved and admired and will be remembered forever. And then the other great thing is that, I mean, if you think about how the, the, how many people he's inspired to become musicians, for example. Uh, you know, I talked with several young musicians who, said, who told me, you know, when I was a little kid, I heard, you know, Star Wars or E.T. or Superman, Indiana Jones, you know, one of the great big film scores that he did in the 80s. And then they decided that they wanted to be, you know, to, to play the French horn or to play uh, the or trumpet. Or become a composer. Or become a composer, exactly. Many, I mean, many, I, many. Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking about other composers who can achieve that. I mean, I can, don't think there are many. I mean, living ones, <laughs> of course. But um, it's it's always uh, a great, uh, it's it's almost moving to me to, to think about this because uh, it's it's always... Music is something living. I mean, it's, it's not something stuck in a library or, you know, notes on the paper. It's something alive. And, and his music is always that. It lives because people are playing it and are loving it and are playing it on records, also playing it with instruments. And this is just great. And, and I think that I love the fact that he's still among us and, and enjoying all this because yes. uh, usually this kind of tributes happens very much late in the game, <laughs> uh, but he's enjoying all this and conducting in Vienna, Berlin and, <laughs> and everywhere I think else. He, I think he's having the time of his life right now. Gloria. This was a really a lovely, beautiful conversation that we had. Thank you so much Thank you. for giving us some of your time and for being so eloquent about your work with John Williams. Me too. I'm really, really grateful to you for, for the time we spent together. Thank you so much. Thank you. And stay well, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Maurizio. Stay well. Thank you, Gloria. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.